Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Tony Rikers. Our topic tonight is entitled, How to Survive the Future. For the last nine nights, we've been looking at the state of our world and what we can expect in the very near future. We have seen that we are living right at the end of this world's history and that Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth very soon. And maybe by this stage, you've been looking at the big picture and maybe you're asking yourself the question, well, where does this leave you and me? Tonight, I want to look at how you and I can be prepared for the final events of Bible prophecy. Tonight, my message is very, very simple. The solution is very simple. When Jesus comes back to this earth, only those, we are told in the Bible, who have their name written in the Lamb's book of life will be prepared to enter the kingdom of heaven. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we've studied this verse in our previous lectures several times. It says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Here we see that famous verse, a verse we've gone through quite a lot. It tells us in the future the whole world will wander and follow after this system, except those who have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice the Bible also tells us who are the ones that will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 21 verse 27, And there shall in no wise enter into it the kingdom of God, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. We live in a time, friends, when there will be but two groups. At the end of time, there'll be two groups, those who have their name in the book of life and those who don't have their name in the Lamb's book of life. And the only way you and I can be prepared for the future events and for the second coming of Christ is to simply have our name written in the book of life. Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, has a book of life. And he wants to place our name in there. But the big question tonight is simply this. Do you have your name in the Lamb's book of life? Do you, friend? Do you have the assurance tonight that you have your name in the Lamb's book of life? And if you don't have that assurance, tonight we want to find out how to get our name in the Lamb's book of life. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 29, he said these words. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. There's a principle here that Jesus Christ is sharing with us. He says, I've told you things that are going to come to pass before they have come to pass. So when they come to pass, you might believe. In other words, I'm telling you of prophetic events in the future so that when they happen and you know I've told you beforehand, you will have confidence to believe. But to believe what? to believe that Jesus Christ is soon to set up his kingdom. All we've been studying in the last nine lectures, talking about the final events of Bible prophecy and the future predictions the Bible's giving us, are there so you and I can have confidence to believe in Jesus Christ. Confidence to believe that what the Bible says, what the Word of God tells us, not only about prophecy, but about how to find ourselves in God's kingdom to find the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ by faith. All that is given for you and I to help us to believe. And friends, the only way you can get your name in God's book of life is to believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
the early Christian church, after Jesus arose from the dead and ascended to heaven, they went to the world with a simple message. Acts 16, verse 31. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. That's the simple message of the gospel tonight. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. It is then when we take Christ into our life, when we profess to believe in him with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, that we have our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But people may say, well, listen, why do I have to believe in Jesus Christ? I don't need Jesus Christ in my life. I've lived a good life, never ripped anybody off, never run around with other women, always been a good family person. Why do I need Jesus in my life? I've, I'm a good bloke. I call it the good bloke syndrome. But friends, the answer is very simple. Maybe you are a good bloke. Maybe in our society in which we live, you've lived a very good life. But the reason why we need Jesus in our life tonight is a very simple answer. Three little letters make up a very simple little word, and that word is sin. You see, friends, sin is like dynamite. It, it uh, destroys everything it comes in contact with. And sin is the curse. Sin is the problem that every one of us here tonight have in our lives. What is sin? We've discovered on night number four, the great controversy, what sin is. First John 3, 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. You see, friends, sin is simply breaking God's law. And if you and I would take God's commandments, as we learned there on night number four, it's like a mirror. It reflects back to you and I that we are sinners because we have all broken that law. Romans 3, verse 23, the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When you look at God's law, his Ten Commandments, it reflects back to you and I that we are sinners. And the greatest need that mankind has tonight is to have those sins forgiven. That broken law that each one of us have broken counts us as sinners and only Jesus Christ can forgive us of our sins. And the greatest need of the world today, friends, and the greatest need of your life tonight is to have your sins forgiven. The greatest need of the world today is forgiveness. Forgiveness in families, in marriages, in communities, between nations. The real longing, my friend, tonight of the human heart is freedom from the burden of sin. Today, people are trying to fill their lives with everything but God to get that relief in their life, to fill that void that's in their hearts. You know, the sun, in comparison to the, to the earth, is much larger and somebody once said, man has a hole in his heart the size of the sun and he tries to fill it with the earth. We all have that spiritual void in our lives and we try to fill it with the things of the world. But friends, the Bible tells us that only the son of righteousness, Jesus Christ, can fill that void. But today people try to fill their lives with the empty things of this world. Pleasures, possessions, fame, fortune, alcohol, drugs, excitement, the games of life trying to fill the void that's there, that sin has left in the heart of man. The modern philosophies of the world, evolution, humanism, the new age, spiritualism, secularism, and so forth, all the isms to fill our void. But friends, the Bible tells us that nothing can fill that void that sin has made in our lives other than Jesus Christ. And I used to be one of those people, friends, trying to fill my life with the things of the world. 
You know, I wasn't one of those people. You hear, you hear sometimes people say, oh, you Christians, you're always a bunch of people that were just down and out in the gutter and you've taken a hold of religion to get yourself back on track. I wasn't one of those sort of people, friends. I was the sort of person that had everything going well in my life. My greatest desire in life to fill that empty void was to make money. I thought money will give me that satisfaction. And I desired to be a millionaire, to have money. And I was sort of well on my way to probably going that direction. I started work at an early age. I'd saved my money. And by the time I was at the age of 20 years of age, I had a nice car, had a nice unit, a brand new unit that we just bought. We virtually owned it all. I had a brand new wife. We just got married. I was on top of the world. Everything was perfect. It couldn't have got any better in my life. But there was something missing in my life. I knew deep down in the heart of my hearts that there was something missing. There was a void. There was an emptiness. And we'd buy this and we'd buy that and we'd play this game and we'd do that. At the end of the day, there was always that little nagging voice that something was missing in my life. And it wasn't, friends, until I found Jesus Christ and I started studying the Bible and took him into my life that I found that peace. He was the one that could forgive me for that life of sin. You know, these men on the screen, they're known as the Rolling Stones, famous rock and roll group, the Rolling Stones. You know, these men, to me, they symbolize humanity. They are wretched wrecks of humanity. And they symbolize this entire planet. You see, friends, they see these guys, these Rolling Stones, they sing a song. And in that song, they, they sing these, these words, I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no satisfaction. These men, my friends, have had everything. They've had all the women. They've had all the fame. They've had all the fortune. They've had all the money. They've had all the drugs, all the alcohol, trying to fill their void of their life with the things of this world. And they sing a song. I try and I try and I try and I can't get no satisfaction. My friends, it's like the theme song of the world. This song sums up the entire world today. Nothing satisfies. The fame, the fortune, the riches, the glory that this world can give you will still leave that void in your heart. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, friends, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to get a life of satisfaction, a life of fulfillment, Jesus Christ is the only way you will find that peace, that fulfillment, and that satisfaction. He is the only way that you will find the forgiveness of sins and your name entered in to the book of life. There's a particular story in the Bible. It's actually my favorite story in the Bible, and it's found in Luke chapter 5. It's found in the other Gospels as well. And in Luke chapter 5, we find here a story about the paralytic. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. And it came to pass on a certain day, as he, Jesus, was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went up upon the housetop and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. Here's Jesus teaching in a certain house. In the front of the house, in the front row, is the doctors of the law, the Pharisees, the leaders of the church. As Jesus Christ is preaching, the roof is torn off. This paralytic comes down in the midst before Jesus. 
And Matthew finishes this story by saying this, this, this uh, account, Matthew 9, verse 2. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. That's a beautiful verse of scripture. Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. You see, this paralytic had lost all hope of recovery. His disease was the result of his life of sin, and his life was embittered with remorse. He had long before appealed to the Pharisees, to the doctors, hoping for relief from mental suffering and physical pain, but they had coldly pronounced him incurable, and they abandoned him to the wrath of God. You see, back in the times of Jesus, they believed if you were a leper or had the palsy or you were blind or deaf, that was because of your sin and God was punishing you. This man, of course, had been to the, to the uh, religious leaders looking for relief, looking for assurance with acceptance with God, but they had abandoned him to the wrath of God. They said, son, there's no hope for your life. You're incurable, you're suffering the wrath of God, and they left him. You know, friends, as we look at our society today, we can so easily abandon people to the wrath of God, can't we? Even myself, at times, I've seen people walk by me on the street. They seem to have gone so low into the gutter of life. And you think to yourself, Lord, is there any hope for this person? That's where this particular paralytic was. The palsy man was entirely hopeless. And he, he saw no prospect anywhere, from any quarter, from any place, and he had sunk down into despair. And then, my friends, he had heard of the wonderful works of Jesus. He had heard that others as sinful and hopeless as himself had been healed. Even lepers had been cleansed. Now, friends, in the days of Jesus, leprosy was the curse of curses. If you had leprosy in the eyes of the religious leaders, you must be the biggest sinner on the earth. That was the biggest curse that you could get. And now this palsy man, he'd heard even lepers had been healed by this great teacher, Jesus. And the friends who told him of these things encouraged him to believe this could be your only hope. If you could be carried to Jesus, he might be able to heal you too. But his hopes began to fall. As he began to think of the life that he had led, at the sinful practices he had been involved in, which had led him into the degraded state that he was in. He feared if he came to Jesus, he too, the great teacher and healer, would not tolerate him in his presence. Because you see, friends, it wasn't so much physical restoration that this man needed. What he really needed, what he really desired, was a relief from the burden of sin. If he could see Jesus, friends, and receive the assurance of forgiveness of his sins and peace with heaven, he would have been happy to live or to die. The cry of the dying man was, Oh, that I might just come into his presence. It's my only hope. There was no time to lose. This man was almost dead. He besought his friends, Please take me to Jesus, which they gladly did. You know, friends, when they got there, the Bible tells us that the house was so crowded, people were spilling out onto the streets, they could not even come to the place where they could hear the words of Christ. The only hope this man had was so close, but he could not get to him. And at his suggestion, he said, take me to the roof, take off the roof and lower me into the room. This they did. Here we find Jesus Christ. He's preaching away to the people. He's teaching them right in the front row. Pharisees, doctors of the law, the very ones that had coldly 
pronounce this man incurable, abandon him to the wrath of God. There in the front, Jesus Christ is teaching, he's preaching as I am tonight, and all of a sudden the roof is torn off and this man is lowered down at the feet of Jesus Christ. Now, as this man was lowered down, I can picture this mournful countenance. All of a sudden he realizes what's taken place, the whole discourse is interrupted. He looks at the room of people, he sees in the front row those who have condemned him and abandoned him to the wrath of God. He looks at the great teacher and he expects Jesus Christ to do the same thing. He expects him to say, son, there's no hope for you, you wretched specimen of humanity. Yeah, friends, have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt in your life that if I came to God, God would reject me? Friends, God will never reject anyone. And now in words that fall like the sweetest music on this paralytic's ears, instead of hearing the words of condemnation, Jesus says, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. The burden of despair rolls from this sick, sinful soul. The sins of this man's life have been forgiven. The disease departs from his life. The helpless paralytic has been healed and the guilty sinner has just been pardoned. Every one of us tonight are represented by this paralytic. We have all been crippled and deformed by sin. We have all been condemned. We all have the burden of guilt. And friends, Jesus Christ is the only one that can help us. It's only by accepting Christ into our life that we can survive the future, friends. It's only by taking Christ into our life that we can be released from the burden of sin. You may be asking the question, well, how do I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior? In the story of the paralytic, we notice three main points. I'm going to call them the three steps to heaven. The three steps to heaven. The first one, belief that Christ, that Jesus is our only help. Number two, sorrow for sin and repentance. And number three, a new person and power. Let's have a look at the first one. How do we find Christ as our Savior? The paralytic came to the realization that Jesus Christ was his only help. And friends, tonight there's no other help on the face of this earth other than Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Acts 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is salvation in no other on the face of the earth other than the name of Jesus Christ, friends. And today people are looking to gurus, to Buddha, to Muhammad, to the New Age, to occults, to the mystics, and to whatever else to find the way of salvation. But the way of salvation is only through Jesus Christ. There is one path, and that path is the one that Jesus opened to heaven. Proverbs 14 verse 12 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. The other ways are ways of death. The way to heaven, my friends, and salvation and the freedom of sin and the burden of sin is Jesus Christ. He is the only way. He is the only one. The paralytic had tried everything else. He came to the realization there's only one hope left. There's only one that can help me. That was Jesus Christ. The second step to heaven is sorrow for sin and repentance. Sorrow for sin and repentance. You know, the paralytic was deeply remorseful and sorrowful for his sin. One of the greatest verses in the scripture is 1 John 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, 
Jesus has promised to cleanse us from our sins. But what does it mean to confess our sins? You see, friends, true repentance, true confession doesn't mean I confess my sin and then I go and do my sin again. Many Christians seem to have the idea that they can confess their sin and then keep living their life in sin. You see, true repentance, true confession means a confession of sin and a turning away from sin. You know, we find a good story about this in the Gospel of John. John chapter 8, we find Jesus is in the temple. And while he's in the temple, the leaders of the church, as it were, brought to him a woman caught in the very act of adultery. They were trying to catch Jesus out. And they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it says she should be stoned. What do you say? Now, they were trying to catch Jesus out. They were hoping he would say, no, don't stone her. So they could say to the people, hey, listen, he doesn't follow the law of Moses. And if he did say stone her, he would, they would say to the people, he's a hard man. He's got no mercy. And when Jesus was asked that question, instead of answering the question, he said nothing. The Bible says he began to kneel down and to write on the pavement in the dust. And the people there were thinking, well, what, what's he doing? What's he going to say? And as they walked over to see what he was writing on the dust of the pavement, they saw their very own sins that he was writing on the dust. And he looked at them and said, he that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, they began to walk away. When there was nobody left except the woman... He said to the woman, where are those thine accusers? And she said, there's none, Lord. And he said these words. He said, I don't, I don't condemn you either. And he said this, go and sin no more. He said, neither do I condemn thee, but now go and sin no more. She was repentant. She was sorrowful for what she had done. Now, Jesus didn't say to her friends, listen, you've got a problem here with committing adultery. You're sorry for it, but let's go back, go and just, just sort of cut back a little bit here. Just do half of the adultery you used to do. Jesus said, go and sin no more, friends. True repentance means you are sorrowful for the sins of your life, but that you are going to repent and turn away from those sins. And there's too many Christians today, friends, that want to live their life and be saved in their sins. The Bible says Jesus came to save us from our sins, not in our sins. The power of the gospel is that Jesus Christ can reach his hand into the gutter of this world and drag you out of the mire of sin, not forgive you and leave you in that mire. We must confess our sins and forsake our sins. It's a little, little bit like if you were a robber. Just say, I, I broke into somebody's house and I steal their television. I'm walking out the front door and the police grab a hold of me. They drag me off to court and I say to, I say to the judge, look, judge, please forgive me. I'm sorry. He says, okay, Tony, it's your first offense. We'll forgive you and we'll give you a second chance. You've got grace, as it were. We've talked about grace before, haven't we? How do I go now? Can I just, when I have been forgiven and I'm sorrowful for that, can I, can I now just go to somebody else's house and steal their television because I've been forgiven? No, the Bible says go and sin no more. Can't go to somebody else's house and start stealing from them because I've been forgiven. Forgiveness means you are repentant and you want to turn away from your sinful life. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Notice there, confessing and 
forsaking shall have mercy. And our third step to heaven, I've called it new person, power. You see, friends, when the paralytic was healed, physically and spiritually, when his sins were forgiven, he became a new person. And the Bible calls this new person experience being born again. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the born again experience when we begin a new life, as it were. The old sinful life has been put away. But today, my friends, in the Christian world, the terminology of being born again has been taken way out of context and been used too lightly. Everybody's born again. With all the praise of the Lord and the hallelujah, friends, being born again means your life has been changed from a sinful life into a righteous life. We have Christians around this world today that have all sorts of ideas about being born again. I came across one one day. He'd been born again recently, had the tongues, had the slaying in the spirit, had the whole lot, but he's still bashing up his wife. Friends, he wasn't born again. Many Christians are getting so confused of what it means to be born again. Being born again, friends, doesn't mean you're speaking in tongues and being slayed in the spirit. Being born again means your old sinful life is finished and you are now living a life of righteousness. Many are confusing in the Christian world today the fruits of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. You see, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, we have what we call, what the Bible calls, the fruits of the Spirit. They are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, meekness, temperance. When you are born again, you will have the fruits of the Spirit in your life. That is the evidence that you are now born again. Where there was once hatred, now there is love. There is joy, there's peace, there's long-suffering, and it goes on. All Christians have that. But the gifts of the Spirit, friends, are not the evidence that you are born again. The gifts of the Spirit, found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, are given by the Holy Spirit to build up the church, to exhort the church, to convert people, to have the church running properly. Not everybody gets all the gifts. Everybody gets all the fruit of the Spirit, but the gifts are given to different people. Notice the gifts of the Spirit. They are apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, miracles, healings, helps, governments, and tongues. Now, tongues is always the last one here, friends. For some reason, many Christians have the idea that tongues is the main thing. Once you've spoken in tongues, you're born again. Friends, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says when you are born again, you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life. We don't all become apostles, prophets, evangelists. God picks out different people for different work. I'm an evangelist. I do evangelistic work. That doesn't mean I'm born again. That's a gift that God has given me as a specific role in the church. The reason why I can say I'm born again is because I have the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And many are coming to me and saying, Tony, you need to be speaking in tongues because that's an evidence you're born again. In fact, I had one pastor many years ago say that I was still lost because I'd never spoken in tongues. Friends, there's no evidence of being born again because you speak in tongues. In fact, since that time, I have actually spoken in tongues. I've had the gift of tongues. Over in the islands, we're over there preaching in different languages, of course, in different areas. A lady came to me at the end of the program with a, a translator 
and said, I can't speak English or understand English, but I understood every single word you said through that lecture. Friends, that's the gift of tongues. That's the true gift of tongues, not the false gift of tongues. Remember this, for every truth there is in the word of God, every true doctrine, Satan always has a counterfeit. There's true miracles, there's false miracles. There's true prophets, there's false prophets, there's so forth. There's true gift of tongues and there's a false gift of tongues. And many are getting caught up in the false gift of tongues and being taught that until they get this gift, they are not born again. Friends, that is a doctrine of the devil. That is not from the word of God. You are born again when you take Jesus Christ into your life, when you confess your sins, when you forsake your sins. The fruit of the Spirit comes into your life. That is the evidence that you are born again. The gospel, my friends, has power. Being born again means you have victory over your sinful habits. Not speaking in tongues, necessarily. But to have victory over your sinful habits. Romans 1 verse 16, the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. You see, friends, the gospel has power. The power of God. You know that word power in the Hebrew is the word dunamis, which means power. And we get our English word dynamite from that word. Dunamis, dynamite. There's dynamite power in the gospel. There are thousands upon thousands of Christians around the world today that can testify to the power of the gospel, how that power has changed their life. And friends, God tonight can give you victory over any temptation that you have in your life. Drugs, alcohol, tobacco, whatever it might be. Many of my good friends in the ministry have been alcoholics, drug addicts. And God's power has delivered them from that in their life. No matter what your problems are in your life, friends, God has the power to help you overcome. If you only ask him and allow him to work in your life. And not only individuals have been changed, but whole nations have been changed at times. We do a lot of work over in the islands. And you go to the islands, friends, and you go back there 100 or 200 years ago, you become dinner. You know, on the screen there's a picture of an old man, old Daniel he's known as. In one of our recent trips over to the islands of Vanuatu, we came across this old man, old Daniel they call him. He's 107 years old. His daughters think he looks like Father Christmas. His hair is as white as snow. He's 107 years old. Now, this man became a Christian when he was 15. The first Christian missionaries came to his island in the early 1900s. This man's parents were cannibals. This man lived amongst cannibals. When those early missionaries got their friends, they feared for their lives. But 100 years later, or even less, there's been a total transformation through those islands where they were once killing each other and eating each other. Now, friends, that entire island is Christian. That is the power of the gospel to change the lives of men. If the gospel had never come to that island, if the missionaries had never gone there, and we were here today a hundred years later, you know what they would be doing? They'd be still killing each other and still eating each other and living like animals. But the gospel has turned these savages, as it were, into saints. The power of the gospel, friends, is around this world tonight. And Jesus Christ wants that power to be seen in your life. I can guarantee you, friends, if you take Christ into your life tonight, you will never regret, regret that. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You'll never know unless you taste. And the greatest gift that you can have tonight is to have your sins forgiven. But sadly, many put off their decision to accept Jesus Christ into their lives. 
to accept his forgiveness and his life-changing power. In the book of Acts, chapter 24, we find Felix the governor. He was one of those who made a decision to put off his opportunity. You see, in the book of Acts, chapter 24, we find the apostle Paul is a prisoner. He's on his way to Rome. And as a prisoner, Felix the governor heard that Paul was in his area. And he called for Paul the prisoner to come before him. He wanted to hear about this Jesus and, and all these miracles that were taking place with the apostles. But Felix the governor got more than he bargained for. Because when Paul started to preach to him, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon Felix so powerfully that he was just shaking. The Bible says in Acts 24, verse 24 and 25, as he, Paul that is, reasoned of righteousness, temperance and judgment to come. He started preaching to Felix about righteousness, that righteousness that Felix didn't have, and an intemperate life that he was living, and he had judgment to come that he himself, who is judging Paul, one day will stand before the judgment bar of God. When he was reasoning with, Paul, with Felix about these things, the Bible says it goes on, Felix trembled. The power of the Holy Spirit, my friends, was so powerfully seen in the, in the life of Felix that he was trembling. It says, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He was deeply convicted in his heart, friends, that what Paul was saying was true. Paul was saying, Take Jesus Christ into your life, Felix. He was trembling. He didn't know what to do. And he made a decision. He said, Paul, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Go thy way. You know, friends, the more convenient season for Felix never came. Felix had his convenient season. He died a lost man because he rejected the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God. Well, just two chapters later, we find another man, another leader, King Agrippa. He hears about Paul. He wants to hear about this faith about Jesus and the miracles and the wonders. He calls Paul in as a prisoner. And once again, Paul begins to preach to King Agrippa. He begins to tell Agrippa about his life and how, how he was converted and the wonders of the gospel and how he has been saved and about the love of Jesus Christ for his soul. And he could see as he was preaching, he could see King Agrippa was deeply moved. The Holy Spirit was working in his heart, his life. And Paul says these words in Acts 26, verse 27 to 28. He said, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. He said, I know you're believing. I know the Holy Spirit's working in your life, convicting you that what I'm saying is the truth. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Just like Governor, uh, Governor uh, Felix, he pushed that conviction aside. He said, Paul, almost you've persuaded me to be a Christian. Almost, friends. How is it with your soul tonight, my friend? Is it almost a Christian? Are you almost saved? Do you almost have your name written in the Lamb's book of life? But it's not there. Are you going to wait for a more convenient season? Are you going to wait for another day when things are a bit easier? Friends, today is your opportunity, right now. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, the Bible says, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For Felix, a more convenient season never came. He died a lost man. For King Agrippa, almost a Christian, 
almost but not wholly saved. He's not almost but wholly and completely lost. He found himself a lost man, friends. His more convenient season came and went without him making the decision. Friends, for you and I to hear the words that were spoken to that paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. It cost something to say that for Jesus Christ. He couldn't just say your sins are forgiven and walk away. He himself had to pay that price. And we can summarize this entire talk in just one text. Romans 6 verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, friends, for Christ to forgive our sins, he had to pay the price for that sin. He was nailed to that cross so that you and I could find eternal life. The wages of sin is death, friend. Jesus was nailed to that cross. He took that death so he could offer to you and I pardon. He could offer to you and I freedom and eternal life. And the question tonight is simply this. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with the plan of salvation? What are you going to do about getting your name into the Lamb's book of life? And as I close this meeting tonight, I'm going to leave you with a question. The question was asked by Pilate at the trial of Christ. There was a great multitude and Jesus was brought out. And Pilate asked this question and he's asking you that question tonight. In Matthew 27 verse 22, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? Friend, what are you going to do with Jesus which is called the Christ? What are you going to do? The multitude said, away with him, crucify him. We don't want him. Friend, how is it with you tonight? God has done everything he possibly can for our salvation. So much so that he has sacrificed his only begotten son that we might have life. And the question for you tonight, friends, is simply this. What will you do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Will you take him into your life? Or will you with the multitude say, away with him? I'll wait for a more convenient season. I'm almost a Christian. I'll wait for a better day. Friends, I want to encourage you tonight, as you listen to this lecture, to commit your life to the hands of Jesus Christ. His hand tonight is outstretched to save. To save. We have seen that the history of this world is soon to close. We are in the toenails of time. The moments of probation are soon to close. And tonight, the call of God is... Commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is simply saying to you and I tonight, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus wants to take the load of sin today. And I want to encourage you, friend, to take that load of sin, that burden of your life, and to commit it to him and to allow Christ to come into your life and to find that peace that only he can offer to our souls. This message was made available by Cornerstone Ministries. For more resources like this, visit cornerstone-ministries.org.
been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. The Saviour is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let Him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep.
Searching for what I didn't know 
What's the purpose of the Bible? Some will be quick to say, it's God's Word for us. And while that's a good answer, that's not really the purpose of the Bible. To answer this question, let's look at how the Bible explains it. Jesus tells us in John chapter 5, verse 39, Search the Scriptures, 
for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So Jesus' answer to the question is, the purpose of the Bible is to testify or provide a testimony of himself. Now, what's really interesting is that this word testify in the original Greek language is the same word as the English word for martyr, which gives us the idea that the scriptures are given to bear record as a witness or as a martyr of Jesus Christ. So in a way, the Bible is just like having a living, breathing witness whose job is to give an account of what it has seen and heard. Maybe this is why John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, to understand how the Bible is a witness to Jesus, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Speaking to Timothy, Paul writes, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul continues, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's take a moment now to explore these four reasons or functions of Scripture that Paul gives us. The first is doctrine. The word doctrine is the Greek word for teaching. So the idea is that the Word of God is for teaching. So how does doctrine reveal or testify of Jesus? Well, doctrines provide the framework for revealing or testifying of Jesus. For example, doctrines testify of Jesus in regards to salvation or sin, death, heaven, hell, baptism, holiness, creation, social justice, hospitality, and addiction. Without doctrine, we would never know what Jesus was like and what he stood for or what he was against. The next thing Paul mentions is the word reprove. The scriptures are given to reprove us. The word reprove is the idea of calling out someone's intentional wrong actions. So how is being reproved connected to the testifying of Jesus? Well, reproving is necessary to show and remind us when we are directly contradictory to the very character of Jesus. Thirdly, Paul says that scriptures are for correction. And the word correction is the idea of pointing out someone's unintentional or wrong actions. How is correction then different to reproving? The correction is in the case when someone doesn't know what they are doing is wrong. While reproving is for the case where someone is intentionally doing the wrong. And lastly, Paul's reason for the scriptures is that it is an instruction in righteousness. This is another way of saying it shows us all the right in the universe. 
It helps us understand the genuine character of Jesus so that the counterfeit is easily seen. So now that we know that the Bible's purpose is to reveal Jesus, and this happens by giving us doctrine, by reproving us, by correcting us and instructing us, what's the point of knowing Jesus so intimately? The ultimate goal of the Bible is to transform us into a complete man or woman of God. Now, what is the definition of what this completeness looks like? In verse 17, Paul tells us that a complete person is one that is transformed into a man or woman of God and is equipped to perform good works. But what does the word equipped mean? Well, equipped is about being supplied with something, meaning you don't start out with it. But after being equipped with it, now you have it. And what are we being equipped with in this verse? Good works. That's what's being supplied to us. We didn't start out with them, but after we're supplied with them, we have good works. So here's the summary in case you missed it. The Bible is given to reveal Jesus and to provide a framework on how to be transformed into His image. It does this through four channels. First, it teaches us about Jesus through a thing called doctrine. Second, it rebukes us or reproves us when we're intentionally going opposite to the character of Christ. And then thirdly, it gently corrects us when we're unintentionally going off in a different direction to the character of Jesus. And lastly, it teaches us everything that Christ is through instruction in righteousness. All of this is designed to transform us into men and women of God. Have a blessed day. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.